Welcome to the Woodshop Life podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined today by Hui Huen of The Alabama Woodworker. Hey, how you doing? Pretty good. And Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. Hey. Hey. This <laughs> podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we are running out of questions, so... If you have questions for the podcast, do not forget to DM us at Woodshop Life and send us your questions or head over to the website. Again, we're running out of questions, so be sure to submit your questions for the show. If you'd like to support the show, we're simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. We want to welcome today's new patron, Eric Mazels. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Woodshop Life if you'd like to show your support. But with that, let's get right into it. Hui, what is your first question? Okay, so my first question is from All Dot Woodworking. Uh, I'm very new to woodworking. I have a modern chair piece that I'd like to build with lots of angles. I have it modeled out in SketchUp and everything looks great. However, when I start cutting the pieces on my miter saw on my miter saw or on the table saw with a miter gauge, I can't get the angles just right and I end up with small gaps. Everything will be joined with floating tenons. Are there any techniques or methods that might solve my gappy joint problem? So I'm going to talk about maybe one method that I've learned or seen through the Wood Whisperer Guild uh, that I think is, you know, pretty effective. I have not tried it, but I would definitely give it a go. And that one method that I've heard about is, is creating a template that that works, that, that has nice tight fitting joints. And then from that using an L fence. And if you want to, you can use a miter gauge or whatnot, and that might help you in getting your joints gap free. Any suggestions from you guys in terms of how, I mean, I think we've all struggled with, you know, like compound angles and whatnot and getting them, you know, not getting them perfectly, you know, gap free. So I'll go to Sean. Any suggestions in terms of how to try to get that uh, those compound angles? My guess is that this is like a modern chair or modern piece with a lot of you know interest, uh, interesting you know, angles and whatnot. Any suggestions? Are we talking about compound angles here? Or are we talking about just like he needs to dial in his miter saw and table saw? Or I think um, it's probably more a case of like miter saw table saw issues. I, I think it's not necessarily like you know, a compound angle. My guess is that he's got like two sides, two halves of a chair that he's trying to basically join together the two halves. And two. my guess is that each of the halves, all those weird complex angles are kind of becoming a little gappy. That's how I gathered. Do you have a issue. picture? Did, did they send a picture or anything? Cause I'm trying to picture joining two halves of a chair. No, no, he, he didn't send a picture, but that's okay. Um, it's kind of how I'm interpreting it. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, from what I've gathered from this podcast, unless you have a, uh, a festival miter saw, you're never going <laughs> to get, you're never going to get good tight miters from it. Uh, the table saw, I, I mean, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, dialing in your, your, I would use the table saw with the miter gauge and then just make sure your pieces aren't moving. You know, you could put, uh, you can put a piece of uh, of uh, sandpaper on there, adhesive back sandpaper on your miter fence to hold the piece in place when you're mm -hmm. cutting it, uh, and and dial in your uh, your miter gauge and make sure there's no slop, and uh, and and keep doing that until you get, you know, repeatable cuts is the thing that you're looking for. Right. Um, you know, if you're having gaps, and this is a, a long shot here, so it's probably not the issue, but make sure your blades are clean. Uh, you want mm -hmm. nice, nice, clean cuts on your, uh, on your, um, on your angles, on your pieces. Uh, it, just, so clean blade and maybe, you know, dial in your miter gauge and put some adhesive backed, uh, sandpaper on the miter fence to hold the piece in place is, is what I'm going to recommend. I'm going to pass it off to guy. What do you, what do you got for him? Well, that's a good question about the, the, the compound angles. I, I mean, I just dealt with this today. As a matter of fact, I have to build five five three of one one of another and another another one of um mid-century modern furniture they all have the splayed legs they're all three different heights 
and you know, there's, there's not compound angles, but there's angles on everything. And the, the angles have to meet up precisely. Um, so the top sits flat, it sits flat on the floor and everything looks nice. So what I've done in the past and what I did today was I drew out a full size template of the part I wanted to make. In this case, it's a, it's an angled leg that's got a, a, I don't even know what the angle is and I don't care. All I did was measure it out, say I want, you know, it, it's got to be this, this far from the edge as it goes up and it's got to be this wide at the bottom and this wide at the top because of course it's tapered and then I want my, my 90 here to do the joinery. So all I did was I, I drew it out on a piece of plywood and then I took a track saw and I cut, you, know, you don't need, you don't have to have a track saw. You can use a, a door board, which is just a, a poor man's track saw with a circular saw. And I cut the two long pieces, you know what I'm talking about? The long sides. And I still had the ends to cut. So there's three more cuts to make. And after I made, I, I, I just took a, a square and made those. And then I use that to make jigs and mm. the jigs are just really simple. They're just, again, pieces of plywood that run up against the fence of the table saw and they cut everything at the angle. I want to cut them. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's so very, I had, very I had simple. A, I had a plywood template mm -hmm. and I used that template to make a jig. That's nothing more than, you know, a, a piece of plywood I put the jig on there or put the piece on there, put the part that I want to cut up to the edge where I know the blade is going to hit. And then I block it out with pieces of wood. Yeah, for sure. Totally get it. It's a very simple, simple method. Really super simple. Yeah. And it worked yeah. really well. Yeah. Yeah. I hope, sure. I hope he can follow that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I get it. <laughs> As to whether or not all dot woodworking gets it. Well, yeah. I hope that was a, I mean, it seemed like a simple enough explanation, so. All right, and we're going to pass it off to Guy. What is your first question? All right, and I have a question from Bill, or Billy, excuse me, from Sugarland, Texas. Mm. It says, I recently got an old school desk, and I'm planning to repair and refinish it so that my kids can use it. I'm starting to think about what kind of finish to use since it will obviously be getting some abuse, but I don't know a lot about finishes. Excuse me. I just kept it simple. I've always used armor seal for my projects so far. I know finishes is a huge topic. No kidding. But could you talk a bit about if certain kinds of finishes are better for pieces that you know will get abuse? For example, a desk or a table versus projects that are more accent pieces. Is it simply a matter of applying more coats to get a more durable finish or are certain types of finishes really better? Lastly, does the sheen satin versus glossy make a difference? Maybe nicks and dings won't show as much with a satin sheen. Thanks in advance and keep up the great work. Billy from Sugarland, Texas. Um, wow. There, there's, we've talked about finishing quite a bit on this show. And I know it's a question that comes up a lot because people always have questions about finishing. It's, it's, it's one of the great mysteries of woodworking. I think, um, armor seal is a very easy to use. I don't want to say idiot proof because it, 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 anything in woodworking is very easy to get right. And it's very easy to get wrong. Uh, Armor Seal is one of those those products that is very easy to use. It's very hard to get wrong. You just wipe it on and wipe off the excess and let it dry for 24 hours and you put on another coat. But just like any other finish, you can put on too many coats and it is a poly. It's, well, it's a wiping poly. So in other words, it's a poly that, that's already thin so it dries faster and it's got a little bit extra oil in it. If you put enough of that stuff on, you'll get like a plasticky finish on the top. So you don't want to put like 20 coats on. 
Normally, when I use armor seal, I'm normally using it on accent pieces, things that I know won't see a lot of abuse. Nothing like a desk. Maybe for the body of the desk or that where the cabinet is, where the drawers and things are, but like the top, absolutely not. It's it's not tough enough, I don't think, to really protect a piece of wood that that well. If you want to, if you don't have spray, let's. I'm going to assume that Billy doesn't have spray equipment. Okay. In which case, if it were me, I'd probably put down shellac first, a couple coats of it, and that's to seal the wood, both on the top and the, and the case piece. It'll also help pop the grain a little bit. And you don't have to impart a lot of color. You could use a, what, what, what's that? We, it's like platine uh, shellac. Yeah, yeah. So there's blonde, and then I think there's even pa- yeah, there's platina super blonde, or something. Like, yeah. Yeah, there's like pl- platine or pl- platina. There's something like that, that that imparts no color. Yeah. Um, myself, I like using amber shellac. As I said, I think it pops green a little bit. Put a couple yeah. coats of that on. And we've talked in length about shellac. I have a video on applying shellac on my on my YouTube channel if you want to take a look at it, Billy. Then after that, a good finish to put on is a water-based poly. Brush it on with a foam brush. It levels really easy. It dries mm-hmm. fast. And it sands really easy. And after it completely off-gasses, which may be a week or so, it's a really tough finish. Um, if I was spraying, I would use a, uh, oh, why can't I think? Conversion varnish. Thank you. Uh, a conversion mm-hmm. varnish. But if you're not spraying, I, I really like, I used to, and I used to use, and I still do use a lot of water-based poly. I think it's a good product. Uh, as far as the sheen goes, Satin versus glossy. Glossy shows every defect in your finish. But then again, too flat of a finish in certain lighting conditions and certain angles will show every defect in your finish. So, um, you know, that's, that would be like a matte finish. Uh, that shows quite a bit. It really depends on what kind of wood you're using, too. So I've, I've rambled on too long. What do you, what do you think we, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of using uh, shellac underneath uh, either an oil-based finish or honestly, even water-based finish. But really I, I think using the shellac and then using an oil-based finish is probably going to give you a little bit more quote unquote pop of the grain in my opinion. Um, but again, if you're already imparting color, you're, you're, you're getting a little bit of that depth of color by having the shellac soak into the grain. So yeah, it, it, I think it'd be fine if you'd went with a water-based poly over the top of it. And I've done that before. I just, me personally, I like an oil-based finish over top of it. So, you know, like well, I'll stuff. tell you what, you know, the, the water-based poly mm-hmm. I found is a lot tougher Oh yeah, for sure. You can put like one or two coats of that stuff on. It doesn't need five, six coats. Mm -hmm. You put one or two coats on over shellac and it's a, it's a very tough finish. It's tougher than people, than people give it credit for. Yeah. So that's why, that's why I recommended it. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's a relatively easy, you know, easy finish to apply. Um, how about you, Sean? What do you, how, how are you with, uh, water-based finishes over top of shellac. Um, I think that's a, uh, a, a great recipe for this. Uh, me personally, I'd probably put 13 coats of a Johnson's paste wax and then call it a day. <laughs> but no, oh, I think uh, you're silly. I think that what you said is good. I mean, yeah, there's nothing more that I could add to it. Um, what do you, what do you, do you think oil would be a better choice than water-based? I mean, I would probably, I would probably go with, with oil myself, you know, just because I'd probably put seven or eight coats of armor seal on it and, and roll with that, roll with the punches. 
just well, because I'm a fan of oil. I mean, I, lo- I like using water, uh, water-based polyacrylic or whatever it's called too, or mm. high performance, but you know, I'm not doing the studies, independent studies myself, but I would, <laughs> I would just go with, uh, armor sale or something like that. Or maybe, uh, what is it called? The, um, ah, uh, shoot. What is the other finish that stinks really bad that I hate the smell of, but love the look of it? Water locks. Water locks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And just build up the layers of that and go with a, uh, a satin and then do buff the final coat after a few days. And then I like using wax and then, mm. and then, uh, use it after, you know, a couple of weeks. Yeah, sure. But I don't, I don't make desks to, to sell to people. I, if I make a desk, I'm using it, which the desk that I'm using right now was, uh, I used, I popped the grain with, with a boiled linseed oil and then I put shellac over top of that. Mm-hmm. And then that's all that I've got on it. It's a nice, beautiful two piece cherry top, but I don't, yeah, have you don't that. have, you don't have kids beating on it. No, I don't. Yeah. And that's, that's what, what I was talking about here with. Well, yeah, I know. But I said that if I don't make stuff to sell, this is what I'd make for myself. And this is the finish that I used. Yeah. I dig it. I dig it. All so right. either one of those, I don't think you can go wrong. Um, is there, is there, can, is there a conversion virus that you can brush on? Can you brush that stuff on? Do you, do I've you not know? known of one. I mean, I, I've had folks. I'm sure tell you me. could. Yeah. I just yeah. don't know what kind of success there would be with it. I've had folks tell me that you can do it. I have not tried it and I wouldn't want to try it. But again, you know, I have, what? I have a spray system, so I wouldn't, you know, so, but uh, again, I've talked about this in the past. I've used solvent based conversion varnish and I will not be using it again. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm referring more to water-based. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I I just wanted to clarify that, you know, that that's, that we're both on the same page in, in terms of, you know, conversion varnish, staying water-based. Because I should say waterborne. Waterborne, yes. So we don't get a bunch of people saying, it's not water-based, it's waterborne. <laughs> but yeah, it, it I, I've done the solvent base and it's like, you know what? One, it's too much of a hassle for cleanup, and two, it is so stinky. I I don't know why I need to reiterate that, but let me just reiterate: I won't be doing that again. So, all right, all right. cool. I think that was a good question, uh, Billy. We appreciate that. So I'm going to go to my first question, and this is a two for one deal here, fellas. Mm. So these are going to be interesting questions that I that I grabbed from the uh, an Instagram story that I posted. First one is is from Leather by Dragonfly. Do you buy your hide glue or make it yourself? And I, there's no way that I would make it myself. I don't I don't use it enough. I'm not advanced enough to make it myself. Uh, so I, I definitely 100% buy it. I'll either buy old brown glue or the uh, tight bond um, hide glue uh, is is what I do. Have you guys made your own hide glue? Or do you buy your buy it as well? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you all have made your own hide glue? Yes. I have. Yes. Why? <laughs> because the old brown glue and the Franklin stuff is too dark. You can really, if you use it on cherry, oh. you'll almost get away with it, but it still leaves a line. It leaves a visible glue line because it's so dark. Um, but when you finish it, you, you hopefully that that'll go away. But like if you tried to use old brown glue, or the Franklin stuff on maple. Not worth it, man. So (laughs) I use, um, I don't even know what they have a, they have a weight grain to it. I can't remember what I have, but I bought a big, huge bag of it. Yeah. And for some, from somebody that bought like 50 pounds of it. Right, and they were right. selling off stuff, so I bought a couple, three pounds of it. I got a big, huge ass bag of it. Yeah, I bought and, a pound of it too, and it's been sitting in my closet. And I have sense. a, I bought a, um, I didn't buy a hide pot. I bought actually a wax, a waxing pot for like people that do waxing. Right. Mm-hmm. And I you already it had there. it though, right? Yeah, yeah. For when I do my, when I do my. Uh, pubes so wow <laughs> too much information i'm just kidding no yeah, i bought it just for the high glue 
and you just put you put the beads in there and you put enough water in it to cover it up and you turn it up to the right temperature and you've got high glue and it's 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 almost blonde i mean it's it's not totally clear but it's not brown and uh it works really well it's stinky it smells like old sweat socks but it works real well <laughs> so okay we i guess are you you in the same boat as why you made it yourself well actually the reason why i made it myself i was experimenting with hammer veneering and when i was oh, talking yeah. to freddie he was saying don't mm-hmm. use old brown glue or the high glue from tight bond use the pellets because you can mix it to the viscosity that you want yeah did he sell you some no <laughs> that's what that's who i got my pellets from okay <laughs> now, I, I had bought mine from i can't remember who i i can't remember who i bought it from it might have been Lee Valley. I can't remember. Yeah, BTC, I think, also sells. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that was uh, the first part. Here's the second question in this easy uh, two-for-one deal. This is from Keith Monty. <laughs> Would you guys ever want to build a wooden bathtub? No, there's no way. No, no, <laughs> no way would I ever want to build a wooden bathtub. <laughs> That's somewhat of a random second question, isn't it? It is. And that's why I picked it. I was like, these are two, two interesting questions, easy hitters. And, uh, you know, we don't have to, you know, we can joke around a little bit on it, but there's, I've never wanted to make one, never made one. Wouldn't even know how to make one. I don't take baths. So I guess the question is, would I make a wooden shower stall? Well, you can make it for somebody else. You don't have to make it for yourself. That's true. Would you want to make it for your wife? She didn't take baths either. Would you want to make it for somebody else she that paid you to do it? She doesn't even shower. <laughs> Would you use a garden hose? <laughs> she, that's terrible. <laughs> no, I walk around the house with a clothespin on my nose. I'm just kidding. It? My wife is like the, the girliest woman I've ever met in my life. She smells wonderful all the time. There you and go, she listens guy. to the podcast, you if you can tell. What's up? <laughs> I said, and you can tell she listens to the podcast. Oh, no, she doesn't listen to this crap. Um, that's not crap. It's a wonderful podcast. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I, I, I actually saw a video once. It was um, Joey Chalk from King Post, or King, yeah, King Post. Timberworks. Timberworks. He built one. And it was pretty interesting to watch him build it. He had a lot, a lot of issues <laughs> building it, but it was pretty cool when it was done. But after it was, after I saw it being done, I'm like, I wouldn't want one of those. I think right. it'd be like building a boat. Yeah. You know, if you use did like a like a yeah. strip thing and then laid down fiberglass on the inside, I think it might be cool. You can get to like some cool shapes and stuff. You can make a guitar shaped bathtub. <laughs> Like people make guitar shaped pools, you can make a guitar shaped bathtub. Yeah, I'd probably. I would, I'm just going to Lowe's and picking one out. I, <laughs> there's no way I I would make a bathtub. Yeah, I don't. No think way. I'd, I'd ever make one either. All right, so those are my two first questions, and now I'm going to pass it off to Hui for your second question. All right, so this question is from Moser Woodcraft, and he asks. After reading Bill Pence's website, my eyes have been opened as to the proper way of setting up a dust collection system. I'd like to run a six-inch main run coming directly from my Oneida dust collector inlet. Pence suggests maintaining the duct sizing and reducing right up to the tool. He also suggests keeping the ports as large as possible as well. However, almost all of my tools have a four-inch port. For instance, the bandsaw it makes sense to have four inch ports since there are two, since there are two of them, one right under the lower roller bearing and one right under the lower cabinet or within the lower cabinet, I should say. However, my table saw only has one four inch port. Wouldn't it be better to increase the port size to six inches to get more airflow? Do you think it would be worth increasing the port size to six inches? And for context, I have a saw stop one and a half horsepower PCS. So if you actually go into the cabinet of the uh, SawStop PCS, you'll actually see four inch flex hose coming from the uh, internal four inch port of the cabinet going to a four inch port and then to a shroud 
within the cabinet of the table saw. So as you probably know, Moser, um, once you reduce the size, you're already choking the flow to your dust collector, right? So if you even increase the port on the exit side of your table saw, it doesn't really matter because you're already reducing down to four inches with the uh, ports and the hoses inside of the saw stop. And then on top of that, the shroud it, over the uh, table saw blade is reduced down as well. So I don't think you're really going to be doing very much by increasing the port size to six inches. Now, again, you are, you know, reducing the amount of length that is four inches going up and to that point. But I don't really think you're going to see that much of a difference, to be honest with you. And for me, the tool, the table saw already has a four inch port. They designed it that way. Uh, I would probably just use it the way that they have designed it. And I wouldn't probably wouldn't modify it. Now, Guy, I know you have a different table saw from me and, and Sean. I, you have a Powermatic. So What's the size of the port? port? It's a foreign port. And here's, 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 a, here's a question I, I, I have real quickly. Mm -hmm. You being the rocket scientist. Oh, great. That's been putting me on the spot. <sighs> oh, God. Here we go again. So everything I've read mm -hmm. about fluid, well, the fluid dynamics, because mm -hmm. air is a fluid. Yep. Right? Yep is that the size of the, the, the smallest opening. So let's yep. say you have a four inch port on mm -hmm. your table saw mm -hmm. is how you figure the actual flow or the, the, right. the, the resistance. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what's before that. Correct. If you have a four inch port on it, it's it might as well be four inches from the dust collector. Right, right. You're you're choking it down. If that's the case, mm -hmm. and that science is true, mm -hmm. why do they always say, "Well, use eight inches as far as you can, or use six inches as far as you can, and then reduce it down to four? If yeah. it doesn't matter, why bother? So, like you're in the you're in the same situation where you're trying to sort mm -hmm. a six inch pipe. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, I think in the case, uh, so like, is that is that a legitimate question? No, it is. It definitely okay. is. So well, explain it to me, please. So <laughs> I believe a six-inch port can actually be brought down to. I, I can't remember if it's a no. Dual let's four say inch a six-inch main run, mm -hmm. and then four inches. You know, it, a four-inch flex hose, mm -hmm. a, a couple feet from the saw, going into a four-foot port it might as well be four inches going all the way back to the dust collector correct yes okay but what you but, can, the, but then why do they tell you i'm trying to, to explain go six inches yeah. so for instance you can, you can do you can do a dual four inch on the let's say a cnc right because uh -huh. you see a lot of dual at four inch and you'll get the same equal amount of airflow from each of the four inches on either side as opposed to just one uh -huh. But you can't do that if it's all four inches up to because then what happens is you're taking four inches and you're splitting the flow from the four inches down to two four inches. So let's say, for instance, if you had 400 CFM coming from the four inch main, right, and that's being split down to two four inch ports on your CNC, well, that gets split down to 200 CFM per four inch port. Whereas if you had a six inch main, let's say you had 800 CFM and then it got split down to two four inch ports on your CNC machine. Well, then that would be split to 400 CFM on either side. And so that's why uh, in many cases, like for instance, a bandsaw, you'll have a dual four inch there and you'll want the biggest amount of airflow. Six inch uh, main is going to give you more airflow. And so that whatever is to say hypothetically 800 CFM is going to be. Split yeah, but that's be just side. because it has two ports. Correct. Let's say it's a table saw. Mm -hmm. It's going to be, it, it's going to be whatever it's going to be. It's going to be, you know, okay. choked down to four inches. So then why bother with larger? And I, 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 
I'm not trying to be argumentative. Yeah. But yeah, I keep no, I hearing understand. all the time that, you know, they, they have the cross section of the, of the, of the hose mm-hmm. is this many inches. And there's a calculation to figure it out. You know, something, something pi radius mm-hmm. cubed divided by whatever. I, I forget the formula, but they, but what they say is if you have a four inch port on your machine, that's all you're ever going to get. It doesn't matter what's in front of that. However, in a different paragraph, especially if you read the Bill Pence stuff, in a different paragraph, he says, well, yeah, run eight inches as far as you can. Yeah. Is that so, so that you what can branch off and make? Is that so that you can branch off and retain? You're not going to retain everything. But, but I guess what I'm saying is that the, the, those are contradicting statements. It also it also depends on how many how many drops and how many tools you want to run at the same time too. So for instance, it, like for instance, in your setup, it doesn't matter. You're running one tool at a time. So I believe you always run just four inch ports, correct? Yeah, but 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 most people are putting just shutting off all the the, the blast gates for everything. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. In my, you understand in, what I'm saying? Yes. I, no, I, 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 it makes total I agree, sense. I agree with running the 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 largest hose you can mm-hmm. up until the point you can anymore because there's less resistance. There's less friction. Right. I agree with that. But what I'm saying is, is that a lot of these people that write all this crap, they, mm-hmm. they, they're contradicting themselves. Yeah. When, when they say, you, if you have a four inch, that's all you're ever going to get is four inch. Doesn't matter what's in front of it. And but if you, actually, you need to put six inch in front of it. Well, and if you easy. actually, if you actually read Bill Pence's thing too, he says, "Oh well, you know, I eight inch would have been the best, but I went with six inch because it's cheaper." You know. Yeah. And so it's like again, huh. it's all it's all contradictory crap. Yeah, but okay, so that's that's a big factor too. I mean, you know, there's a big price difference between six and eight inch, you know, ducting. But he's saying, "Oh well, you should go as big as you can." Yeah, but. Price makes a big difference too. If it's going to cost a difference of a thousand dollars for ducting just to go up from six inch to eight inch, and if you're saying that the differences in performances in performance based on your motor size and based on whatever cyclone you're using is marginal, then your your the amount that you gain from spending that extra thousand dollars is very marginal, and to me that's a waste of money. Yeah. Um, I look at the dust collection in our shop. We've got these big, you know, 10, 10 or 12 horsepower, three phase units. I mean, these things are 20 feet tall. Right. And the, the, the impellers are four feet round. Mm-hmm. I'm not kidding you, man. That's gigantic. They're huge. Yeah. You, you, it's, it's, they're really, really big. And they have huge amounts of suction. We've got all kinds of tools running off them. And what I've found with that type of system, it doesn't matter anything other than the machine itself. So, for example, our joiners and planers, completely dust-free. No problem at all. It just sucks up everything. Even at the furthest run, it sucks up everything everything we have we have table saws that are at the beginning of the run which are just horrible there's there might not you might as well not even turn the damn dust collection on but they're at the beginning of the run right um and the the joiners and the planers are at the end of the run right so it, it, to me it really I, I think it comes a lot down to the machine itself I, I know there's table saws that give you much better dust collection than others do. Right. So I, I, I think that instead of, you know, trying to figure out who's got the correct information as far as ducting and size and blah, 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 blah. Find out which machines have the, the physical machines themselves, which have good dust collection. Mm-hmm. I think to me, I think that's more important. It's fair enough. Sean, do you have anything to add to this? (laughs) 
No, I'm not going to open that can of worms about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I'm, I mean, I have a six-inch main that drops down to four-inch for all my tools and seems to work out pretty well for me. Yeah. But as far as him, uh, Moser, as far as Moser uh, making the upgrade on that on that saw stop, you nailed it on that. It wouldn't do any good because it, it immediately goes back down the four, like two inches inside of the saw. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. I agree with that. All right, uh, Guy, what is your next question? Okay, this is from Robert Couch. And Rod, Rod, Robert asks, so I'm new to veneering. I finally purchased a vacuum pump and bag. Awesome. I love the fact that you could arrange veneer into different orientations to get the look that you desire. I want to make a modern credenza. I want the gradane, want the gradane, the gradane the for his credenza to run in the same direction and match the vertical carcass pieces to the horizontal carcass pieces. So he's talking about like a waterfall grain. Yeah. Um, what's the best method to ensure grain matches? So the best method to do it is to find a piece of veneer long enough where you can veneer the ends, the top, or the a, a side and end and the top, or a, a side, a top, top and the other and, end, yeah. um, all with one piece. Yeah. That can be tough sometimes, depending on the size of your credenza. What I've done in the past, and I did this on, on, on my, my uh, media center, that's in my family room. I wanted all um, riffs on walnut. Finding riffs on walnut in long lengths is very difficult. Mm -hmm. and it, it was only coming in like eight foot chunks. And I needed a lot. I needed like, I think like 10 or 12 feet. I think even like 10 feet to do it. Um, and it just wasn't long enough. So what I did was everybody's familiar with book matching, right? Where you take two pieces of veneer and you flip it open like the pages of the book. Yeah. And uh -huh. you've got a consistent veneer, but in like in a like in a, a mirrored effect. You can do the same thing by flipping it end for end. Mm -hmm. Right. So in other words, you take it and you veneer up to a point, uh, let's say, you know, you, you can do one side and the top with a piece of veneer. And now when you get to the, the veneer that goes down the other side, you take another piece of veneer and you flip it end for end with it. So the ends match. So you're doing like a book match or a book match, but on the ends of the pieces. Does that make sense? Yep. yep. I'm glad you guys understood it. Cause I, I, I don't think I explained it properly, but that's, that's how I've done it before. Um, and going across, then you can do a book match or a slip match. One of the two and get consistent. If you buy the flitch of an ear, in other words, a flitch of an ear is sequentially cut sheets. So all the, 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 the grain color is going to be, you know, close to perfect. Uh, or the right. same. The only thing you have to worry about is when you have, well, I'll, I'll let you, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. I'll stop there. We, have you ever done anything like this before? Uh, yeah, I did this recently with a Sapile sitting bench, whatever you want to call it. Um, and what I did was exactly like you said, it was a single piece of veneer that I knew would be the length that flowed from the sides to the top to the other side. I didn't care so much about the bottom that wasn't visible. Yeah. In fact, actually the bottom, I used a totally separate piece of veneer. And what I did is once I, once I got everything, uh, veneered and out of the vacuum bag, that's when I cut it. I didn't cut it beforehand. I didn't try to split it and then, uh, make sure that I joined it properly. Cause ultimately when ultimately you're going to have to cut it down to final size, even after you veneer it. Right. So it's better to have just one singular continuous piece that you're cutting down at that point after you veneer it as opposed to before it. 
because it, 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 it just won't match afterwards, you know, and if you're off by just a little bit, just by a degree in this, this direction or a degree in that direction, is this going to throw it all off, especially with something that like ribbon, ribbon sepulae is really going to notice the difference that the lines are not matching or, or lining up. How about you, Sean, anything that you want to add to that or, um, you know, no, I think that you guys pretty much covered it. Um, <laughs> sorry. What? <laughs> what? No, I'm just sorry that it was like, oh, well, there's, you know, third no, I mean, on the list. It's, it's not, a very, not a very deep question. No, no, yeah, it's not. For sure, for sure. You, but it's a good yeah. question. Oh, it, it definitely is a good question, but, you know, get a piece long enough and, or, you know, and, and go to town on it. I do have a question about your method, Hui and, and Guy. Maybe this will help Robert um, and give me a little bit of something to talk about, I guess, so I can <laughs> contribute something. <laughs> but now... And I know, Guy, you said you you chose riffs on. And um, do you want to talk about the importance of choosing? You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna glue or uh, veneer one long board and then chop chop the the miters on it, uh, you're going to be removing a kerf mm-hmm. from the blade. Mm-hmm. So, how important is it to have kind of a um, you know a a uh, a quieter type grain with the, uh, the riff or the quarter sawn or something like that versus something with cathedral pattern or, or something like that, that you're going to really notice that you took a kerf out of the middle. Well, see, the thing is you don't have to take a kerf out of the middle. Hmm. So if you take, let's say you got two pieces of veneer sitting on mm-hmm. top of each other, they're in a flitch. Okay. Move the one sheet down and maybe like four or five inches from the end, make a mark a witness mark on both sheets that that's, that's where you're going to cut it. Does that make sense? Cause you're going to do, let's say you do the top. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah, one yeah, yeah. end different at different times. Well, that's what he was, we was talking about where you've got to, you know, have two separate pieces. You're veneering. You're not going to veneer one long piece, especially if you got, you know, 12 feet. You know, you can't get 12 foot plywood. You can get 10 foot plywood, but even then it's, it's, it's a pain to deal with. Uh, my bag wouldn't deal with that. So okay, you, just find, you just find a spot to cut it at. All right. And okay. I got gotcha. you. And the fact that you have that flitch means that you can still cut them and they mm-hmm. line up still just perfectly. Yep. Okay. All right. So that, that was, I wanted to clarify that for, for Robert. Because that, you know, I, you could come up with a small enough piece like Hui's maybe was small enough to to veneer as one solid board and then cut, cut. Then you are going to have a missing, you know, a, a kerf removed from that. Yeah. And even then, if you cut it, yeah, it, it, at least a kerf. So then you're going to have to make sure that that the the grain is quiet enough that it's not going to be too noticeable. If a, yeah. if a piece is small enough like that. Yeah, or busy enough where you wouldn't notice. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Yep. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know that that little bit of a difference. I mean, it's one of those things only another woodworker would notice. Yeah. Nobody else is going to notice it. Yeah. Right. I, I get. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with you. Um, yeah. But as a woodworker making these things, you're trying to, you know, minimize the impact. Yeah, you're trying to achieve perfection. Yeah, um, which is tough. <laughs> I'm I'm yep. basically a hack, so <laughs> I just kind of like throw stuff together and hope it works. But um, yeah, I mean that's that's a chasing perfection thing, and I and I dig what you're saying there, Sean. But you're gonna have to cut if you've got if Some you're using you're one to piece to do, let's say, a side and a top. Mm-hmm you're going to lose that. If you don't want to lose it, you can do both end, the, the both side pieces, what I was talking about before, mm-hmm. and then you can achieve perfection. But that's very wasteful. Yep. All right. Well, those are a couple options. If you need it to be absolutely perfect, there's options. Mm-hmm. But I think that what you know you guys have given out should help Robert with, uh, with doing that. Uh, what is he doing? A modern credenza. So mm-hmm. yeah, that that's a, that's a big piece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yep. all right. Well, the last question is, is for me and this for is, uh, 
the Roaring Woodwork. This is from Greg Ryeski, uh, the Roaring Woodwork on oh, Instagram. Okay. Do you sand inside surfaces before or after gluing dovetail parts together? Sanding before equals potentially changing the fit and sanding after equals hand, having to sand the inside corners. So what I do when I'm, let's say I'm making, you know, a, a carcass or a drawer or whatever, what I do is I, um, I will mill the lumber, get it to the final size and I'm ready to cut dovetails. I will sand the inside pieces from, let's say, I don't know, 120 and 150 and get them pretty close to finish ready. And then I'll cut all of the dovetails and, uh, or actually I'll, I'll take that back. I will get them finished ready. So 80, 120, 150, 180, 220, whatever your final grid is. Uh, and then I will do the marking and the cutting test fitting. And if everything fits well, what I do is I will put the pieces together and that will tell me, well, you actually should know from the, from the, the, uh, the marks from the, uh, the marking gauge, but then I'll, I'll use some, some tape so that if the glue comes on the inside of the surface, that it's just going to be on the tape that you can peel up after you've got the carcass together. Um, because you're right, it's, it's actually, it's a pain in the butt to, uh, having to sand inside corners and that's never, never easy. So I, I actually, I will fully sand the inside of the panels. Um, and before I do any of the cutting so that I'm ready to go when I'm, when I test fit, I'll put, I'll put tape in there, I'll glue it. And then after everything is clamped and I know there's no more squeeze out, uh, I'll pull the tape off or sometimes I'll let the tape set until the glue dries. But some, sometimes that it's a pain in the butt getting the glue off or the, the tape that the glue will cause to stick. Uh, and then obviously on the outside, you know, you can work that however you want, you know, uh, flush up the, uh, the proud dovetails and then sand it. But that, that's my method for, uh, for the inside panels is, uh, handling that with what I just mentioned. Um, Hui, how do you, uh, do you touch up the inside panels or how do you, what, what's your method for, uh, for what Gregory's talking about? Yeah. So I, I touch up the inside panels before I fit the drawers. Does that make sense? So mm -hmm. I'm fitting the drawers to the finished panel as opposed to the unfinished panel. And so then that way, um, you know, you're progressing. Okay. You're going from the outside in finishing the outside pieces, and then you're getting the inside pieces, the drawers to fit to that finished dimension. And that's what I do. Say that um, I wasn't following you. Sorry. Could you say that again? Yeah. So what I'm, <laughs> I'm pre-finishing English. We say it in English because <laughs> you know, my, my accent is non-regional as it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what I'm trying to do say is that I'm pre-finishing the carcass pieces before I pre-finish or fit the inside pieces, that being the drawers. And then that way I've got the final dimension for the inside pieces. Those are done. And then as I'm, as I'm fitting the drawers, you know, hand planing them or sanding them down, I'm sanding them down or hand planing them down to fit that finished surface on the inside of the carcass. Does that make sense? I don't, I don't know if maybe you're not picking up what the question was perhaps, or I'm maybe not saying I'm not. it right. I thought before, say you got two boards, you're going to be dovetailing the corner. Mm -hmm. Do you sand the inside of those boards before you glue the dovetails together? Oh, okay. I'm so sorry. Oh, it's I, right. I get what the question is now. I, yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, you know, I, I might sand a, a little bit the inside of the drawers, but I mean, not, not a significant. Yeah. I, I'm sanding it before or getting it ready for finish before I even do the dovetails. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's, that's essentially what I do too. And okay. get it completely finished, ready, then cut the dovetails, mm -hmm. then glue them together. Mm -hmm. And then, then fit them boom. to do, yeah, fit them to carcass. Yeah, yeah. You, ha you almost have to do it that way because any work you do, you know, it's going to change the width of the drawer, the the the, the joinery. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, if you're if you're cutting them and then sanding them, yeah, you're going to, you know, yeah. Before let's pins. say let's say you cut them, sand them, and then glue it up. 
is what yeah. I'm talking about. That's a bad, that's a recipe for disaster there. Yep. Yeah. And that's also about the same thing that I do. It is the same thing as how I cut miters, like on boxes. I'll sand it as one long board, get it finished, ready, cut the miters. If I scuff it, you know, across the table saw, I'll lightly sand it. But then, you know, you don't want to, you do not want to change the, uh, the thickness, although you're not changing much, it's enough to cause a slight gap. Be gap or be loose. Right. Um, Yep. I, it really depends. I don't, drawers i typically don't even put finish on well that i just came up with drawers i think he's probably talking about carcass pieces that's just a carcass pieces if the if it's on the inside and it's not going to be seen i i don't sand hell i don't even put finish on it yeah okay say it's the inside of a cabinet i don't bother with stuff that can't be seen about the inside of a wall cabinet if it's dovetailed well that's that's different so with something like that, I would definitely, you know, sand the uh, pieces first, then do the joinery. Yeah. Cool. I think we're all in agreement on that. Uh, yeah. Hopefully that helps Greg. Um, he makes some. Yeah, I don't some, know why uh, he's asking pieces. us. We should be asking him. Yeah, he makes some beautiful stuff. <laughs> he's good. <laughs> he's good. Yep. And he's, he's, uh, he's, he's really gotten the hand-cut dovetails down. Yeah. I saw that I think he sold his lead dovetail jig, so he's he's going at it full steam with hand cut. Wow. <laughs> a, really? Yeah. I think. Don't I mean don't don't quote me on that, but maybe I'd I'm thinking use of somebody a else. Jig. <laughs> if I was doing as many drawers as he's doing. Oh yeah. But maybe he's gotten fast enough where he doesn't need it. Good yeah. more power to him. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. I think that'll do it for this show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have questions that you would like answered, You can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through the Instagram account at woodshoplife. Again, we are running out of questions. We are literally down to less, you know, I got more toes than questions. (laughs) So if you send us a question, it will automatically be entered in our million dollar giveaway. That guy is, is holding. So not, not me. <laughs> yeah. It's all, it's all guys. Yeah. Retirement. Yes. I will and pay we, somebody a million dollars. I have that kind of cash just laying around. And if you, if you do, if you're wondering if we had a preference on your, uh, the way that you submit your question, uh, the, the website, in my opinion, gives you, uh, it's easier. So, uh, we'll take it from either. We'll take it any way we can get them. Any way we can get them but website is probably going to be the easiest unless you, oh, yeah. unless you like tap it on the What's the screen. URL for our website again? Again, it is woodshoplifepodcast.com. So right. with, with that, we would also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps with the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback because without you, there's no us. Was that, was that cheesy enough? Oh, all right. And you can reach me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. Hui, what about you? Where can you be found? Alabamawoodworker.com. And you can find all the links to my social media on my website. And Guy, where can we find you? Uh, guys Woodshop, just guyswoodshop.com, Guys Woodshop on, on YouTube, Guys Woodshop on Instagram. It's just Guys Woodshop. If you do a Google search for Guys Woodshop, all my stuff will come up. Great. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. All right. See you. Talk to you guys later. Bye. See you.